Thank you for tuning into this special presentation of the novel The Dead Kids Club by Rich Hosek, read for you in its entirety on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs Fiction Podcast. The Dead Kids Club is what I like to call an everyman thriller, ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances. It follows a divorced couple after the death of their son and asks the question, what would you do if the killer of your child got away with it? How far would you go to get the justice you deserve? the revenge you need, and how will you know when you're done? The complete book will be serialized over the next several months, between my usual short story episodes. I caution you that unlike most of the content on this podcast, The Dead Kids Club is a gritty thriller depicting scenes of graphic violence and mild sexual content, so if you're sensitive to that type of material, you've been warned. Please visit bedtimestories.studio to subscribe to my mailing list so you don't miss any chapters of this unabridged audio presentation and news about my upcoming thriller, The Tenth Ride. And now, Part 6 of The Dead Kids Club by Rich Hosek. Jeremy. 1. The week passes slowly. I spend Tuesday at home but do some work remotely. It's slow going with only one hand. The next day back at the office, I get the requisite teasing from my co-workers about breaking my arm and settle back into a regular routine. It feels a bit strange not to be stealing moments in the server room to plan another killing. Thursday night, we go to group. No new members this week, just the regulars with old Harold sitting in his corner. Amy is under strict orders to pretend not to know about Cooper's death. But when Barb gets to the point when it's time to share, she can't keep it to herself. I got a call from a deputy sheriff up where Steve and Todd died. He had some news he wanted to share with me. I look to Rebecca. She avoids my stare and instead squeezes my hand, reminding me not to betray anything by my reaction. He told me that the man who killed Todd and Steve died in an accident at his diner. He's not going to be killing anyone else's families. He's not going to keep on living while the souls of his victims lie restless, waiting for justice. How did he die? Brian asks. Amy shrugs. I didn't ask. I was just glad to know he's dead. I hope this brings you peace, Barb adds. It does, actually, she responds. There's a shared moment, a silent communication between all of us that we understand completely how she feels, Rebecca and I more than the rest of them. Then the silence is broken. I wish the bitch who killed Jeremy was dead, says Tina, the mother of the boy who was killed bicycling to school by a drunk driver. Her husband, Larry, nods. They say things happen in threes. Maybe God will take that woman and send her to hell. I'm surprised. I didn't take Tina and Larry for the vengeful type. It had occurred to me that Vitaly's death would foster such feelings in some of the other parents. But the intensity in their eyes is unexpected. I can tell they look upon Rebecca and me, and now Amy, as the lucky ones. They still have to live with the knowledge that their children are dead, and their children's killers are alive. They have to worry that they'll see them at the store, or driving down the street, or laughing and having fun with their own families. Let's pray, Barb suggests. She reaches out for Brian's hand, and the hand of the woman sitting next to her, and bows her head. The rest of us follow her lead, except for Tina. Pray for what, Barb? Tina asks. Pray that God will give us the strength to endure our sorrow, Barb answers. I don't want to endure, Tina responds. The moment of prayer dissolves, and everyone turns their attention to Tina. I think we should pray that he drops a piano on Sharon Dempsey, 
or gives her a particularly painful case of cancer, or a lion escapes from the zoo and eats her. I admire her imagination. That's not what prayer is for, Bob insists. Why not? Whatever happened to an eye for an eye? Please, Tina. I'm supposed to ask God for what? To give me the strength to forgive that bitch? Her kid is still alive. She gets to see him every day. I have to drive to the cemetery to see Jeremy. I have to stare at a cold stone instead of my son's face. Barb responds. I know it's hard. I miss Betsy as much as you miss Jeremy, Tina. But it does no good to keep hate in our hearts. What good does it do to hide it? Tina asks. We've been coming to this group for six years. And don't get me wrong, Barb. She starts to cry, bites her lip as she calms herself to continue. I think I would have killed myself if it wasn't for you and Brian. You helped us deal with Jeremy's passing at a time when no one else could give us any comfort. But love and forgiveness can only get us so far. I feel like I'm at the end of my rope. She turns to Rebecca, Amy, and me. And forgive me for saying so, but God, I envy you. Ever since I saw the story in the news that Nick's killer had been murdered, I've been wishing that I'd see a report that Sharon Dempsey had met an untimely and horribly painful end. You're so lucky to have that closure. We made our own luck, I think to myself. I don't know how much peace it actually brings you to know that the people who killed your children are dead, but it has to be a hell of a lot more than I get from praying. Barb doesn't respond. She actually looks a bit scornful. And who can blame her? Her group, the one she founded and fostered on the premise of keeping love in our hearts, was being hijacked by open calls for vengeance. Rebecca and I had really stirred the pot, but as I look at the people in the room, it is clear to me that it was on the verge of boiling over before we ever got there. Maybe we should stop coming, Rebecca offers. At once, the group erupts into a cacophony of pleas to stay, and voices insisting she put that idea out of her head. Barb is conspicuously missing from that chorus. I think she does wish we would stop coming that we would cease being the wind that fans the flames of hate she has labored so hard to quench in the hearts of everyone in her group. Brian speaks up. No one is leaving this group, he says with authority. He pauses to make sure he has everyone's attention. Believe me, I struggle with the same feelings you have, Tina. If it wasn't for this woman by my side, I might have done something long ago that I know I'd be regretting right now. No regret over here, I think to myself. I think it's healthy for us to voice these feelings, he looks at Barb. I know it makes you uncomfortable, but we're not all like you. And the thing I love about you is that you have a heart big enough to accept everyone in your life as they are. Barb softens at the compliment. We would never ask anyone to stop coming, Brian continues. There is a bond between us, an understanding that we desperately need. Whenever we take a vacation, we leave on a Friday and come back on a Wednesday, so we don't miss a meeting. 522 of these we've had. People have come and gone. But those of you who have been here for the long haul, have been more than just people we see once a week for a couple hours. You're our friends. You're family. He chokes up a bit. Emotions are running high among all of us. I glance over at old Harold, and even he seems moved. He's bent over with his face in his hands. I think he's weeping, but I can't really tell. So, like all families, we're going to have our disagreements. But it's important that all of you know that this is the place, this is the only place in the world, 
where we don't have to live under glass, where we don't feel like exhibits in the pity museum, where people don't point and whisper when they see us feeling sorry for us. And as hard as it is for us to accept sometimes, it is the love we have for our children that binds us, not the hate. The hate is hard to put aside, I know. But let's try. Because we've been doing this a long time. And as hard as it is to do sometimes, it does work. And it does bring us all comfort. You know, something we used to do a lot when we first started, but haven't for a while now, is to just share with each other something we love about our children. Say something that you remember about them. Something that makes you smile or even laugh when you think about it. I know you all have a lot of things like that you can share. So let's do that. We don't have to let go of our hate, but let's put it aside for tonight and share our love. Barb looks at Brian lovingly. I get the feeling he's had to make a speech like this before. And he's good at it. Most of the cheeks in the room have trails of tears running down them. Brian continues. Betsy, when she was five, wanted a puppy so bad. She begged and pleaded, but I kept on telling her she was too young, how she needed to be older to take care of a dog. I would try to set the bar high enough to discourage her. I told her she needed to keep her room clean and make her bed. I told her that she needed to make sure all her toys were always put away, because a puppy would chew up anything she left lying around. I told her she had to be able to get up early in the morning to take him for a walk, and she'd have to pick up his poop. That grossed her out at first, but she decided she could pick up poop for her puppy. He laughs to himself. You can see the memories lighting up his eyes, filling his heart with love. For a month, she was diligent in doing everything I said. She even got up early every morning, came into our room, and announced to me that it was time to walk the puppy. She even had a name for it. It had to be a girl puppy. Princess. Princess the puppy. Well, between Betsy and Barb, I finally wore down and got her a miniature poodle. Thousand bucks that damn dog cost me you never saw a kid and a dog so much in love with each other. The breeder had suggested that we crate the dog at night, but that didn't last long. Princess was snuggled up with Betsy every night, and every morning she took that dog for a walk. Of course, I had to get up and go with them, but I didn't mind. When Betsy died, Princess still slept in her bed every night, but you could tell her heart was broken too. It was just a few months later that Princess passed away. Not even death could keep those two apart. Brian smiles, chuckles to himself at something else he remembers, but keeps to himself. Barb is next, and tells us about the first birthday party Betsy had where she got to invite her friends, and how she agonized over the list, and it grew and grew because if she invited one friend, then she'd have to invite another, so she wouldn't hurt anyone's feelings. They ended up with over 30 kids at that party. One by one, everyone in the group shares a story. Brian was right. It was exactly what we all needed. Tina is even able to take a break from her hate-driven frustration to tell us about the time Jeremy put on a puppet show with his stuffed animals for her and Larry. The only one who doesn't participate is old Harold. By the end, we've gone well past the time we usually break up, and it takes quite a while before any of us actually leave because of all the hugs that are shared. I understand Barb's faith in love a bit more now. Love is all you need, as the song goes. But I can't help feeling that revenge is still nice to have, too. 2. I flip the computer on, and it blinks to life. Don't know how to thank you, Brian says. Thought for sure that thing was a goner. Yeah, well, it is on its last legs, I warn him. Wouldn't be a bad idea to pick up something from this decade. 
but the online backup I added should keep you from losing anything until then. Thanks. Wouldn't want to lose those vacation photos. Although if the ones of me in those pink Bermuda shorts happen to evaporate into the ether, I think the ether would spit them right back, I joke. Brian is in the midst of a sip from his beer and nearly spits it all over the computer I have managed to resurrect with my one good arm. Ain't that the truth, he adds, wiping his mouth with the back of his hand. I take a big swallow from my own beer. It's cold, which is about as much as I can say for it. That's something about that guy who killed Amy's family, ain't it? Brian says casually. Hmm? That guy, what was his name? Corker? Kramer? Cooper, I correct without thinking. Yeah, that guy. Brian looks at me inquisitively, then takes a breath and another sip from his beer. Reminds me of the Crawfords. Nice couple we had with us for a few years. They don't come anymore? I ask. Nah, stop when the bastard doctor who operated on their daughter while he was high on oxy and put her in a coma drove himself into a quarry not too far from here. I'm sure that made them feel like karma was making its rounds. Sure did. They announced a couple weeks later that they didn't need the group anymore. I haven't heard from them since. Oh. I'm telling you this, in case you hadn't guessed, because I want to make sure that you and Rebecca aren't thinking that you don't need us anymore. I mean, not that I wouldn't be glad if that was the case. But we've met far too many parents doing this, and you get a feel for the ones who need it and the ones who don't. I see, I tell him. Rebecca and I don't have any plans to stop coming to meetings. Your speech the other night about us being a family was right on. We really do appreciate what you and Barb do for us, for everyone. Brian nods, empties his beer, and sets down the empty bottle. You know, for a while there was a stretch of time when it seemed like almost every year we would have someone get a visit from the Karma Ferry. He grins. At one point I thought there was some sort of avenging angel out there, looking out for people like us. Really? Ah, just wishful thinking. Everybody dies sometime. But if you're waiting for it to happen, you just notice it. Right, I agree. Like shooting stars. There are probably hundreds of them every night, but if you're not looking... Trees falling in the forest where no one's around, Brian finishes. Another beer? Sure. I finish off the one in my hand. How many trees, I wonder, can I knock over before someone hears one fall? Three. It is the second time I've noticed the man in the last week. The first time I saw him was when I stopped at the drugstore a couple nights before. I was checking out, and he was standing at the front of the store by the ATM. He wasn't using it to get cash or anything, just reading the instructions and ads on the screen. Now he stands next to a black SUV three pumps down from me at the gas station. I fill up the tank on my car, but he doesn't seem to be doing anything except watching me, though I can't be completely certain of that since dark sunglasses sit between me and his eyes. The reason he jogs my memory is that he's wearing the exact same clothes. Black slacks, black shirt unbuttoned to reveal what can only be described as a shaggy coat of chest hair, and a black leather jacket. He wasn't wearing the shades in the drugstore, but his attire is identical. I finish pumping my gas and drive by him as I leave the station. He watches me go, but doesn't follow. I pass it off as a weird coincidence. 4. We arrive at Roger and Sally's house right on time. Rebecca has made a lemon meringue pie, and I hold a bottle of wine. Rebecca, so nice to see you again, my boss says. Nice to see you too again, Roger. Where's Sally? Out back. She doesn't trust me around the grill. I'm only allowed near the bar. Don't I read a hello? I ask. Roger puts his arm around Rebecca and guides her inside. 
We really only wanted to see Rebecca. You're here out of pity, he jokes. Fine, I'll be out in the car with the wine then. Good luck opening with that arm, he says, calling my bluff. I follow them inside. My boss takes the wine and brings it into the kitchen, pulling four glasses from a cabinet. Sally enters from the back porch, a smile on her face. Rebecca! They embrace. It's been too long, and I'm so glad to see you two together again. Rebecca reaches out for my hand and I hold it. Well, thank you for the invitation, she says. Feels like we're finally getting back out into the world. You've been in our prayers, Sally adds. I hope you know if there's ever anything we can do. People with the best intentions will never understand how painful it is to hear them say that. How ridiculous it is to think that they have some special power they can call upon to make us feel better. But putting aside the ill feelings that accompany that misguided sympathy has been getting easier, almost second nature. Thanks. Roger hands out the wine. Come, give me a hand outside. I need information. Roger is horrible at getting anything out of that tight-lipped guy of yours. Do I smell your cedar plank salmon? Rebecca asks as Sally opens the back door. The aroma that sweeps in with a breeze answers the question. They walk outside and start talking like they were picking up a conversation they were having earlier that day. She's looking good, considering, Roger says. Yeah, it's uh, been going well. We're going to this group for surviving parents. And we started going to church, too. That helps. Well, the good thing about having a wife who insists on doing all the cooking is I get to watch all the games. The Blackhawks are just getting started, he suggests. So weird that they're still playing hockey this time of year, I say. It's either that or golf. Hockey. He leads me to his famous man cave. Something he likes to give regular updates about at work. It's equipped with the latest video and audio technology, and we settle into his plush theater seats, drink the wine, and watch hockey on his 111-inch projection screen. There is no talk of work, no questions about what's in the cards for me and Rebecca. Just a couple of guys, watching a bunch of other guys, smash each other as they try to smack a thick disc of black rubber into a net. It's like a micro-vacation from the insanity that has been my life, and I sit back and enjoy it. 5. After dinner, Sally entertains us with stories about some of the crazier clients from her interior decorating business. Rebecca coaxes me to tell everyone about the writer who interviewed me for the book about the Vitalis. I think I saw something about that family on Lifetime, or TLC, or something like that. One of those shows Bill Curtis narrates. Yeah, Rebecca says. Seems like everyone knew what a shit he was except for the jury. This writer guy thinks he was killed by someone in his own family. Or a rival, wanting to make it look that way. Or a particularly clever, disgruntled ex-girlfriend, I add. Who cares? The bastard's dead, Roger offers. Let's talk about something else, Sally suggests. I was telling Rebecca about the lake house. She looks to Roger. We should invite them to come up with us. Of course, my boss agrees. You'd love it. Nice and quiet. They don't allow any gas motors on any of the boats on the water. Great fishing. What do you say? I look to Rebecca. She has a look of eager excitement. Sure, that'd be great. Sally puts her hand on Rebecca's knee. I'll call you this week. We'll pick a date. Can't wait. The conversation shifts to Roger's fishing stories up at the lake. Sally is teasingly skeptical about all his claims, and we laugh away the rest of the day. I drive us home, and Rebecca is flirty. I get my hopes up that when we get home, we might have a repeat of that night we got back from Cooper's, without the messy homicide. You know who else has a place up on the lake where Roger and Sally go? The question surprises me. My mind is in a different place. No, 
The Dempseys. I try to remember where I heard that name before. Who? You know, Sharon Dempsey. The woman who killed Tina's son, Jeremy. Weird, huh? How do you know this? Amy found out. I thought it was such a strange coincidence when Sally brought up inviting us there. It's like fate, isn't it? Apparently Sharon Dempsey is there pretty much every weekend. Part of me was wondering how and when Rebecca would bring this up. I didn't expect it so soon. I only heard the name Sharon Dempsey a few weeks ago. Rebecca and Amy must have been looking into her for at least that long. Maybe even before we killed Cooper. No, I say, it's not fate. It's the perfect opportunity to help Tina and Larry. They haven't asked for our help. What do you mean? Of course they did, at the meeting. I think back on the events of that evening. You didn't tell her about Vitaly and Cooper, did you? No, we don't have to. I think everyone there has put two and two together. We show up, a grieving young couple whose lives are destroyed by Vitaly, and shortly thereafter, he's dead. Then Amy goes on about how she wants to see Cooper die, and a couple weeks later, he's dead. Now Tina is asking for help. She may not know who's involved, or how, but she's asking for help. Our help. That's ridiculous. Rebecca assumes a pouting pose and averts her gaze from me. Fine, if you just want to leave them suffering. And there we are. She knows which button to push, which string to pull to get me to do her bidding. Even as my anger grows and I think of new ways to curse this Pandora's box I've opened, I start thinking about the seeds of a plan, how Rebecca may be onto something. We'd be in proximity to Sharon Dempsey completely at the whim of someone else. And like Cooper, there would be no reason to connect her death to us. And keeping Tina and Larry in the dark would assure that we wouldn't have a repeat of Amy with them showing up at the crime scene snapping photos. Rebecca takes my silence for what it is. Tacit acceptance of my fate. Here we go again. 6. At work, I fire up my secret computer and try to find out what I can about Dempsey. There's a lot of news coverage about the accident that took Jeremy, which dredges up memories of Nick that are far too recent. It's hard to read about the tragedy they endured. I remember the incident being discussed on local talk radio stations. There was quite a public outrage about a mom who not only drove her own children to school intoxicated, but took the life of another child. The cries for her to go to prison were only surpassed by the voices clamoring for her children to be taken away from her. In the end, neither happened. The case dragged on in the courts for years. The trial ended in a hung jury, and the district attorney felt it wasn't worth the expense to the public treasury to retry her. Without a conviction, her lawyer was able to sweep away the threat of putting her children in foster care. She and her family moved out of the neighborhood where they had lived, but not too far away. Not far enough away for Tina and Larry. Searching public tax records confirmed what Rebecca and Amy had already uncovered. In addition to their home in a posh suburb, they had a lakeside property in the same border town as my boss and his wife. There is a real estate agency that caters to the area and has a lot of information and links to many of the community organizations surrounding the lake. Only sailboats, canoes, kayaks, or pontoon boats with electric motors are permitted there. A weekend ritual of paddle-powered craft gathering at the center of the lake where the stars reflect off the still surface of the water is supposed to be spectacular. It's almost second nature the way my mind starts to fill in the details of a plan, and more than a bit frightening. I'm stuck on how she should die. Tina's suggestion of her being eaten by an escaped lion seems impractical. There are no zoos in the area. This is something that will require a bit more thought and research. 
The door to the server room opens and closes. Footsteps. I yank the USB memory key from the server and switch over to a diagnostic screen just as my boss peeks around the corner. Hey, don't you ever take a break? Thought we were getting some latency on the SAN. We might need to replace some of the solid-state drives. Well, whatever you need. We have plenty of room in the capital budget, so I'd leave it in your hands. Listen, Sally is so excited about you guys coming up to the lake. How is the 15th for you guys? Two and a half weeks. That should be enough time to figure out a suitable fate for Sharon Dempsey. Sounds good. I'll tell Rebecca. She's excited, too. Although for completely different reasons. Great. One other thing. Bob is coming in from Dallas for the big management retreat next week. We should set up a lunch. He needs to meet you. Okay. Hanging out with the boss sure had its perks. Fast track to management was something I hadn't even thought about since before Nick's death. But it seems Roger still had it on his mind. I can make time whenever. All right. I'll set it up. And I'll email you directions for the lake. GPS always gets it wrong. I'm sure it's on purpose to keep the riffraff away. You may be on to something there. The local chamber of commerce is very protective and resistant to change. The local movie theater only has one screen, by city ordinance. A regular Mayberry, huh? Yeah, except Floyd's barbershop charges a hundred bucks for a haircut. I laugh. My boss takes his cue to leave and disappears back out the way he came. I finish the diagnostics I'm running, jot down the specs of the drives I need to replace, and head back to my desk, thinking of ways to kill a middle-aged mother of three. Just your average homicidal computer guy. 7. The next time I see him, I know it's not a coincidence. And he knows I know it. The man in black is looking at me over the stacks of citrus in the produce section of the grocery store. You're that guy, he says. I'm sorry? I saw you on the news. That guy killed your kid, right? I nod, offer a weak smile, and toss a grapefruit into my basket and move on. Obviously, he's not a cop. The first irrational conclusion my mind leaped to when I saw him tossing an orange up in the air and catching it in his left hand. He follows me as I head toward the dairy case. That was something how he died, huh? I know now that I'm not going to be able to just ignore him, so I go along with the conversation. Yeah, yeah, that was something. Some people think it was a mob hit. I heard that. You know what? I got a theory. You want to hear it? Sure. I grab some cheese and move on to the yogurt. I think it wasn't a mob hit at all. I happen to know a thing or two about mob hits. This wasn't done by a pro. I swallow hard. Who the hell is this guy? What does he know? A pro wouldn't have killed a guy right after he fucked some chick. Chicks come back. That's what they do. A pro would have walked away, come back another time. That's interesting, I say, selecting a few tubs of yogurt and turning down the freezer aisle. I get the sense you're patronizing me. No, not at all. I hate when people patronize me. I find it very annoying. I don't mean to offend you. It's just I'm sensitive talking about anything surrounding the death of my son. And I don't know you. Forgive me. Where are my manners? He extends a hand with thick, strong fingers. Mikey Manzanetti. I put my hand into his to shake before realizing where I had heard that name before. He squeezes tight. Too tight. My hand is wash in pain. He lets me wince for a moment, then lets go. Well, Mr. Manzanetti, it's been interesting to meet you, but I need to get home. Right. You get that pretty ex-wife of yours waiting for you. Rebecca, ain't it? I freeze. What's his game? 
So, don't you want to know who I think really killed my friend Antony? No, I don't. Could have been that bitch who found the body, he says. Liar, if you thought that, you'd be stalking her, not me. That would be awfully bold of her, I suggest. Mikey nods. Yeah, but bitches do crazy things. How about that wife of yours? She ever do crazy shit? No, not really. Of course you say that. I mean, you ain't gonna talk shit about your lady to a complete stranger. Good point. Hey, you're not doing that patronizing thing, are you? I think I mentioned I find that very annoying. No, I just want to get home. We reached the checkout lanes, and I picked the one with the shortest line. Normally I go through the self-checkout, but I want to limit Mikey's opportunity to continue his disturbing conversation. I still don't know what he wants from me, and I keep on playing back Eddie Horn's theory that this is the guy who was the real ice pick hitman. Well, I don't want to keep you. Just want to say I'm really sorry about what happened to your boy. Thanks, I appreciate that. I say, hoping Mikey won't find it patronizing. Yeah, you must be as torn up as Antony's father is. You know, he put out a contract on the boy's killer. Really? Half a million bucks. Curiosity gets the better of me. How will he know if he has to pay out? I mean, it seems someone could just knock off some poor guy and say he was the killer and cash in. Good point. You're a smart man. He needs a confession first, of course. Of course. So that makes it a bit harder. Omelets, Mikey adds cryptically. Excuse me? I ask. Gotta break a few eggs sometimes. You know, to see if it's a good egg or a bad egg. I sensed he didn't quite grasp the expression he was mangling, but I wasn't going to bring that up for fear of sounding patronizing. You seem like a good egg, he says. Thanks. The checkout line finally moves to where I can start unloading my cart. Of course, you never really know if any egg is good or bad unless you crack it open. I force myself to empty my cart onto the conveyor before I look back toward Mikey. He's gone, but his threat still hangs in the air. Thank you for listening to the Dead Kids Club on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs Fiction Podcast. If you are enjoying this free presentation, I hope you'll take a moment to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app or Audible and sign up for my email list at bedtimestories.studio. Make sure you rate and review on the apps that allow it and share this podcast with anyone you know who enjoys audiobooks. You can also show your support by purchasing this or any of my other books in paperback or ebook editions on Amazon, or the complete audiobooks on Audible. And lastly, if you're a fan of paranormal mysteries, I hope you'll also check out the award-winning Rainy Day Investigation book series, co-written with Arnold Rundick and Lloyd Auerbach, at rainyday.com. That's R-A-N-E-Y and D-A-Y-E dot com. Thanks again, and all the very best.